guys, welcome back to the special, not really special, but... It's always special. Yeah, well this is going to be uh, International Women's Day. I don't know why I'm putting up air quotes, I'm not. Um, International Women's Day focused episode in celebration of International Women's Day. And equally, since we talk about women's issues and popular culture anyway, it seemed timely. Yeah, and we also wanted to discuss... Um, the Oscars, which happened on Sunday, mm, and kind of yeah, the fallout from that. that um, our thoughts on the winners, and just like the general ceremony and how it went down. Mm-hmm. And equally, we have seen three of the six nominees. Yes. Yeah. Two of them more recently, so we want to kind of chat about those maybe as well. So a lot of, lot of content Yeah, so in we this think episode. we're going to talk specifically about... Uh, Ladybird and The Shape of Water, both of which we've seen in, in the past few weeks, mm-hmm. and both of which um, were major nominees at the Oscars. Ladybird actually went home with nothing. Yeah, which is quite sad, I will no, say. Definitely. Um, the Shape of Water obviously won the big, the big hitter, Best Picture, big prize, yeah. Um, but it didn't win Best Actress. That went to Frances McDormand, but mm. she did a really exciting speech. Empowering speech. So, Helena, what was your favourite moment of the Oscars? Or oh, we should preface this by the fact we live in the UK, so obviously we didn't stay Watch up the Oscars, until no. like 2, no, it was even 2am, well, it's like 6am Some of my colleagues at work did. There were, some people do. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, there yeah. were two people um, from my office, um, both editors actually, so my um, the managers, who literally, yeah, took off today because they're watching it overnight. And I'm <laughs> intrigued by this because like, like the Super Bowl, maybe I would watch overnight. Uh, Eurovision, I will watch from you know end from end to end every year. But yeah. the Oscars, I'm like, I I never even I don't even know like where you'd watch it. Yeah, I think they show it on Sky. I do they. Um, oh. But I think if I lived in America, I would 100 percent watch it. But oh yeah, sure. I wouldn't stay up on a Sunday. No, neither. Would I. I also quite enjoy the waking up in the morning and then like reading everything. Like you know, <laughs> yeah, I woke up and I was like, who won? Yeah, who and won? seeing all the dresses and like yeah, yeah. I always enjoy that. So, so, but mm. it, given that, um, what was your what was your highlight? Ooh, there were quite a lot, quite a lot of fun stuff happened. <laughs> we were just talking about this before we started, but I think, ooh, honestly, I think one of my favourite moments was um, when uh, Daniel Kaluuya won for no, he didn't win when Get Out won for um, best screenplay. Screenplay is that did, did they win? Yeah, they not won. best adapted screenplay. They best won best screenplay. screenplay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, Daniel Kaluuya went up with I can't remember his name suddenly it's got on my head Jordan Peele the Jordan director. Peele yes yeah. um, and um, Chadwick Boseman was handing out the award and he did the Wakanda Forever I just saw Black Panther like last week as well and I just find it really I found it really funny how like the Black Panther cast like dominated the red carpet yeah, like, like Chadwick Boseman someone, someone on Twitter was like Chadwick Boseman's basically done what RDJ Robert Downey Jr. did as Tony when becoming Tony Stark because like, he's basically kind of like become him on the red carpet now like he wears the tinted glasses and the little suits and then the same happened with Chadwick Boseman in that his fashion sense has gone from like relatively stylish to like influenced kind of quite directly by the costuming and stuff like that from Black Panther yeah and he does the Wakanda salute which is the crossing of the arms over the chest and stuff and then obviously um you know um the women of Black Panther as well were out in force on the red carpet in all the red carpets so far, the Oscar in the mm. in the award season, absolutely killing it. They've been they've been everywhere. You know the cast, um, and I think it's just it's also. And then you know they walk up on stage, and obviously Daniel Kaluuya was in Black Panther as well, and they share this moment. And it's I think because Black Panther has been a very um, if still mainstream important film in terms of diversity and inclusion, inclusion yeah. inclusivity. Um, yeah, I thought it was really fun. So I definitely say Black Panther dominating the mm. box office and the awards red carpets, and just that moment between Chadwick Boseman and Daniel Kaluuya. I thought it was like 
really great that they felt they they felt that they wanted they felt the power and the strength in like doing that Definitely. for each other. That was really cool. I and also like, it's cool that great get out one as well. But yeah, you go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna say those those moments which are fun, um, but also do you have this kind of underlying sense of like things are changing. A meaning, and, yeah. Yeah. Um I, you know, I really enjoyed Frances McDormand's speech. Mm, um, mm-hmm. I mean, she's kind of known for being her own person and a bit of a loose cannon uh, <laughs> in terms so of what true. she decides to do. I always remember her as um, uh, oh, what Miss Pettigrew? No, Miss Pettigrew. Yeah, Miss Pettigrew. Oh yeah, she's great. At she's that. great. That's a great yeah, film. Is Underrated. Um, no, I was going to say um, you know Madeline. Oh, of course, yeah. she's Madame Clavel. Yeah, Miss Clavel. Miss Clavel. Yeah, that's Sorry. it. I was trying to remember the name. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was very good in that. But obviously, uh, you know, she, <laughs> she, she, didn't, she didn't win the Oscars for either of those films. But, um, <laughs> she should have. Jeez. She should have done. But yeah, I really liked how she, you know, she she got all the other female nominees to stand up, mm. which kind of had a, a dual purpose. Um, and they were not just the actors, the actresses. It was also, you know, the other really people, like cinematographer yeah. and anything else. It kind of highlighted, like, a how like few of them there were, mm. and also b like just the. Yeah, bringing them together and kind of celebrating all of them. And their successes, um, yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. And and then, of course, she she kind of confused slash um, invigorated everybody by ending her speech by just saying inclusion riders. Mm. And um, no, no one really... Yeah, it was like really the most what, Google term yeah. overnight. Um, but the meaning of it is, you know, that you stipulate in your contract that you want to... That you will only do the film um, or the project if it in... You know, if also like uh, a significant percent, I think. Yeah, yeah, fifty percent of the of the crew are women or um, people of color Mm. or uh, whatever it might be that you LGBT, yeah. Um, It's interesting because I actually was reading something about that just the other day. I now cannot remember who it was who I was reading, but it was somebody who who stipulates that in their contract. I realize that's really unhelpful, Um, but. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. The fact that it is actually something that's becoming more common in Mm -hmm. Hollywood is quite exciting. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I think both examples, obviously mine's a bit more of a fun one, but still, you know, Black Panther has um, echoes and its roots in sort of the civil rights movement of the 1950s. That's kind of where a lot of the cultural heritage of the idea of the Black Panthers comes from. Um, Not that Black Panther is in any way that related to... Well, it is related to civil rights, actually, because the villain of Black Panther is doing so because he feels the oppression of coloured people, people of colour, particularly um, the black community around the world, and he wants to use Wakanda's power to do something about it in an evil way. But still, it's motivated by, you know, the civil rights, kind of the civil rights movement and their similar motivations. And also, you know, inclusion riders, that these two out, kind of outstanding moments of the Oscars um, and the other outstanding moments include, you know, Emma Stone giving that little... You know, she was she was awarding the best director. Um, she was the best. She was announcing the best director winner, and she made a little Natalie Portman esque point that mm. there is no one woman nominated and yeah, four other men. Yeah. She was like Greta Gerwig and four men, and people were talking about how she actually was ignoring the intersectionality of the nominees for um, best director because they include a you know an Hispanic man, a black man, as well as a woman, um, and all these kind of things. It's kind of pointing towards. Themes of like diversity, discrimination, women's dis- discrimination against women, diversity within the film industry. These are kind of like the seminal standout moments of a awards season that's actually been quite characterised, I would say, by, you know, um, controversy and sort of attempts at change with, yeah. the times, with the Time's Up movement and the Me Too movement and Oscars So White from last year that's still echoing over to this year. I think it's, yeah, it's really interesting that these seminal moments are coming out of trying to 
be an an activist within the entertainment industry, which is very different from a couple of years ago. You wouldn't expect actors to speak out about anything. And now it's all they do. Yeah. Yeah. I've just found, I googled it and found the example of the inclusion rider mm-hmm. that I was thinking of, and it was actually Jessica Chastain. Um, oh, sure. And so this is a this is a, from an Entertainment Weekly article, and it says, um, she provided a recent example of an A-list star using their power to ensure racial diversity and equal pay. The Oscar-nominated actress ensured that her Oscar winner, Octavia, that Oscar winner Octavia Spencer, her co-star in The oh, Help, I remember this, got yeah. five times her asking salary for their upcoming film. Um, and I think it was Octavia Spencer who actually... Uh, told that story and was no, like, yeah. you know, it was an example of um, mm-hmm. Jessica Chastain kind of using her privilege to like try and help other women mm-hmm. um, but yeah there were also some f- fun moments I enjoyed um, Jennifer <laughs> yeah. Lawrence just like roaming around with her glass of wine well, it was like very relatable <laughs> I think I saw a picture of her trying to climb over some seats yeah. in like her beautiful dress but you know when you are just like holding that glass of wine you're just like no I'm not putting that down like, <laughs> I thought that was relatable and also loved James Ivory's Timothy mm. Chalamet shirt I mean he's one of all of us who have all fallen like honestly I feel like he's the darling oh, yeah. of the internet I've seen him all over Twitter this morning um, in his white suit mm. and that kind of thing just being Timothy Chalamet and being like yeah woohoo he has like, so many like crazy fans like mm. on the internet and they all call him well a lot of them call him Elio like the name of his character in the oh, film yeah that's weird but, but... No, that's a bit intense. Mm. <laughs> I'm not one of those just putting it out well, it's like calling Daniel Radcliffe Harry all the time yeah but he's, some people are I think um it's it's nice that he is he has become so popular I mean it's a lot of pressure on someone who's so young but <laughs> it does mean that um it does mean that he he kind of is this voice of like a new generation um, mm, and he's quite he's woke yeah as they is, would say he isn't is he woke, i mean yeah. he is one of the ones who um donated his salary from a woody allen film he was recently in to a um not to the time's up fund but i think was it partly to that and partly to one of them was like an lgbt yeah uh, charity and you know the again the work that he and army hammer did, and you know he was in two oscar nominated films Maybe, yeah. you know, for less of a sort of, like, you know... Um, like... Yeah, obviously his role in uh, Lady Bird is more of a sort of, like, half-funny sort but of, like, fun serious. But he does like, a good job of it, doesn't he? He yeah. does, honestly. He delivered one of, the, one of the best lines of the whole film, in my opinion. I can't remember what the line is, so I'm not going to try and butcher it. But... but it's funny, because when we were watching it, and um, when we were watching Lady Bird, I feel like we kind of fangirled when he came on screen. We were like, no, oh, no, 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 no. He's sitting on a car... And he goes, he just looks over and he's being all like artsy and he just yeah. goes, yeah, that's hella tight. <laughs> it was just like the dead, kind of slightly deadpan, absent, but also like chill delivery. I loved it. It was amazing. And then obviously in Coin By Your Name, I think he and Army Hammer were aware that they were sort of not making history as such, but more the cultural importance of what they were doing together. I mean, and obviously we, we've talked before about, you know, we have a podcast about Queer By Your Name if we're interested. We talk quite a lot about yeah. how great the performances are, how considered, how, you know, impressive. So, but yeah, also he just seems like a really nice, he does. great guy. I was he? telling Helena that I did fall down a YouTube hole the other day of watching many interviews <laughs> with him. And he is, he does give really thoughtful, considered interviews. He's obviously yeah. a very intelligent guy mm-hmm. um, and very funny and charming, which, you know, is what you want from an actor, really, yeah, isn't absolutely. it? absolutely. Oh, and of course I have, you know, Pixar, I've done it again, where they've swept the board they won best animated feature and best original song yeah, for yeah. their movie Coco which I haven't seen yet I will see it but actually if any of you are interested in a film which is very similar in terms of style and setting um, the the, the uh, film Book of Life which was done by a more independent um, film company oh mm. gosh maybe five years ago four years ago um, which is basically about uh, the Day of the Dead and um, Mexican Spanish culture and it has wonderful music and has Diego Luna <laughs> 
<laughs> sorry, I'm sorry for coughing. No, sorry, right, right. <laughs> no, but I, I knew Luna. you were going to say that. Yeah. yeah, it has Diego Luna in it. And if you don't know, Diego Luna is amazing. If you haven't watched Dirty Dancing 2, you need to. It's a seminal film. <laughs> much better than you would think. You much better than you would think. You know, bred my love we for... We must a... have talked about that before in this you podcast. Must have There's no about way it. we haven't referenced that. <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, so... Um, but yeah, that was great, I think, as well. I'm a big fan of Pixar and Disney and all that they do, um, particularly when they do films that include diverse cast members. Me and my friend watched Princess and the Frog last weekend. Mm. And just that film is so underrated. The styling, the characters, the music, anyway. But yeah, I was also quite excited about that. I'm yet to watch Coco. Well, I'll tweet my thoughts out. Yeah, I've heard so. good things. I definitely... Oh, definitely. And how can it be bad? It's Pixar and it's music and it's a boy with a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Flan, it's got a Sorry. bit of a tickly cough. Yeah, I keep trying to hold it in the bits that we could then cut out. So. <laughs> it's fine. But I keep, I keep just coughing over Most you of instead. what I say is bull anyway, who cares? <laughs> um, so, yeah, overall, it's been. I think it's been a quite interesting Oscar season, I would say. And I'm happy with the winners generally, particularly for the big four, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we haven't seen... Um, we haven't seen The Darkest Hour. Uh, and Gary Oldman won for that. Um, and so I feel like I can't really criticise his performance having not seen it mm. um, but I do feel like it doesn't seem the most exciting choice absolutely um, I mean you know remember I guess you know with with any award series season you are awarding high achievement and Gary Oldman certainly achieved a lot in his career yeah well, we were saying that earlier that actually sometimes Oscars are given I think partly in a sort of recognition of the person's contribution to oh film, yeah which means that you know young Winner or young nominees like Timothy Chalamet and um, Saoirse Ronan are like less likely to win because their career is so much yeah. shorter. Yeah. Although there obviously there have been other examples like you know Jennifer Lawrence won her Oscar. I think she was only like twenty two or something. What did she win it for? Um, for Silver Linings Playbook. Oh, she was really young at that point. Um, but That's yeah, weird. that was. A, weird I think it depends a bit what you know who you're up against. Yeah, um, absolutely. But we were both happy with The Shape of Water winning uh, Best Picture. Yeah, we were. We were saying how it's interesting. I read this in an article about The Guardian earlier today, uh, which was saying that it's interesting how some critics or some people on Twitter have said that um, The Shape of Water was the safe choice um, compared to Get Out, mm. uh, Call Me By Your Name and Lady Bird. Um, and their commentary was Maybe that, three billboards as well. Possibly, yeah. But actually in any other time, any other, you know, lineup. The idea of the shape of water being like the safe film would well, be she has quite such strange. Fish. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is that is a big part of the film, and also the protagonist is a woman who actually doesn't speak because she's uh, she's got a disability, and mm-hmm. um, her best friend is a gay man, and then um, her other best friend is an African American woman. So you know, actually, those characters don't normally get to be center stage of a film. So yeah, it's absolutely, quite a progressive movie. You could argue, um, and it's just interesting that actually. In some ways, the best picture lineup this year was quite exciting, mm-hmm, and there definitely. were other films that maybe seemed more out there in comparison. If you look at Lady Bird or Call Me by Your Name or Get Out, they are all a bit not niche but segmented. Like um, Get Out's a horror film, which you know, whilst it is a very good film, it is still horror, and that's a genre some people are turned off by. And it would be unusual. I mean, the last horror film to win an Oscar was Silence of the Lambs. Oh, really? And yeah. think how long ago that was. That was in the 90s, I think. Yeah. Um, Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird, I will say, absolutely an achievement in lots of ways. But still, it's kind of a more female, like for women to see it. It's a coming-of-age teen movie-ish. 
a la, it reminds us quite a lot of um, 10 Things I Hate About You, didn't it? Mm. Um, and then if you think about the last one, which is come out of my head, Calling By Your Name, again, kind of arty, Italian set, maybe a bit more of an indie art house film. If you think about what you've got, which is two films that is maybe a bit more Oscar mainstream, more like you would think they'd be Oscar bait, and then three films that are kind of less Oscar bait, more exciting, but are equally a kind of a little bit niche in their audience, you know, where your audiences are. And then you have, you're right, the more middle of the road Shape of Water, which is fine science fiction fantasy, but it has a very mainstream, well-known director. Equally, Sally Hawkins is well-known because of Paddington and Paddington 2, particularly at the minute. Those have both been quite well-received films. Um, you know, it's set in America. It's kind of more of like a romantic love story. Fine, there's a guy who's a fish, but equally, um, I feel like the use of prosthetics in films and otherworldly supernatural characters isn't completely unknown. No, and they bit, yeah. do quite like, I think they quite like that sort of transformative element Yeah, as absolutely. Well. And Octavia Spencer is also very well-known. Um it's quite sweet and nice and happy and I think I, I think it's more likely The Shape of Water has been seen by a wider section of the audience yeah, than yeah, any of the other right. films apart yeah. from maybe Three Billboards because it's been more buzzed about yeah but even so I feel like there's probably people who would be put off Three Billboards by what is kind of a sort of disturbing uncomfortable yeah whereas I feel like you go and see The Shape of Water it does provide a lot more escapism and happiness and I think there is a could have been an argument if any of them had won there could have been an argument made for saying it deserved it I mean, maybe not the post, because I think it was a bit bit mainstream. But the other, the other five, I think, equally, in, as we said, in each, each in their own way, they were exciting, interesting, forward-thinking films. Yeah, I mean, I think, as I said, I find it very, very hard to compare them, the ones that, that I have seen uh, to each other. And, They're all so different, yeah. Yeah, and to decide that one of them is better. Because, I, you know, I was saying to Helena before we started recording, we saw Call Me By Your Name, like, about five months we ago. We loved it, didn't we? Um, and absolutely loved it, and it stuck with me. Um, so that means that I'm kind of somewhat biased towards it because it's kind of been part of my life for longer. Yeah, sure. Whereas I saw, like, The Shape of Water like two days ago so you know I think that sometimes it actually takes a bit of reflection before you could compare films but it's a bit like how you know Moonlight and La La Land I would never compare them That's like so why would anyone different. ever compare those films you know just yeah, absolutely. they happen to come out at the same time shall we take away onto our next section um, yes um, shall we we've been talking quite a lot about The Shape of Water so shall we uh, dive in to Shape of Water oh yeah oh god alright absolutely Well, Shape of Water, all I can say from the get-go is that I loved it. Mm. I like, I nearly cried with joy at the end. I was so, so happy when I finished that film. So happy. Yeah, I, I, I do think it's a film where every element of it is beautifully and precisely thought out. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, even the, from the very beginning, you've got this voiceover which kind of lulls you into this like fairy tale sort of ambience. Mm -hmm. And you've got her asleep. Um, and it looks as though she is Sally Hawkins' character. This is Eliza. It looks as if she is. It looks as if she's floating in water. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed the whole way through how this is kind of. There isn't an obvious uh, moment where the water ends and like our world begins. Yeah, like everything is kind of painted in this bluey, greeny tone. There's lots of rain. Yeah, I loved the '60s setting. Um, yeah, the costumes. You know the the background the diner they go to the theater like mm -hmm. the movie theater like, all of that is just so sumptuous to look at yeah um 
And the CG, well, he's not CGI actually, is he? He's a prosthetics creature. Yeah, I think maybe the only thing I would maybe guess was done digitally was his third eyelid. Because the creature blinks and the eyelid closes, and I don't oh, know yeah. how they could have done that. What about his like when he when he's sort of happy, he kind of glows. I imagine that might have also. I would put it past them to have because put LEDs. That was real, wasn't it? That's also one of the great things I loved about this film. Um, we were talking about this at work actually, me and my colleague. That um, if you think about um, my example is Puppet Yoda in the first three Star Wars films, yeah. versus um, D- CGI Yoda in the three prequels that yeah. came later, where they were all high on this um, CGI trend, and it just doesn't age as well. Puppet Yoda looks much more realistic when you watch it now. 40 years later than um, CGI Yoda does because obviously digital technology has increased by leaps and bounds while a puppet is still a puppet. Yeah, that's so overall. true. And, and I think particularly in this, in this, in the shape of water where, you know, the, the premise is that she falls in love with this amphibious man. Mm. And I think the fact that he is a physical being... He's real, yeah. ...is very helpful because if he was a CGI being, even if it was like state-of-the-art CGI, it might be a bit odd. Mm. Um, but one thing that I thought... So I knew this was a romance. I knew that was the central element of it. And it is the central element of it. But I was also intrigued by how a lot of it, however, is a kind of almost a pastiche of like a Cold War thriller. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, And also there's lots of elements of uh, those creature films like E.T. or any, any film in which there's a mysterious thing that they found oh, and that they're, they're trying to keep under lock and key yeah, on the Wikipedia in a facility. Page. Yeah, they were talking about how they wanted to do kind of a remake of those monster films. Yeah. And then Gil de was sort of kind of jumping on that bandwagon with this film. Yeah, so I, I, I liked that because I like that genre um, and I always think it's interesting. Um, and I thought they actually balanced, you know, the there is like a real uh, sort of tense, there's definitely a, quite a, a, a sequence where it's very tense where you're like, is he, you know, when they're trying to break out the creature out, yeah, of, the, sure. out of the facility and that's... Um, a big part of it as well as the kind of sweeping romance but I think fundamentally for me it was grounded in Sally Hawkins performance and her her face is so expressive uh you know so moving and you're you're very so it was just so refreshing seeing her as the heroine um you know she's like a little bit older than your average she's meant to be 25 in this film Yeah, because it says twenty five on her ID card. I actually saw that, but I thought that it was because you know when they're when they're doing that, he's he's um he's lowered his age. So I thought he was just. I thought he was just. I think she's supposed to be twenty five, but I think okay. Well, good for her that she was playing twenty five. I think I think equally maybe her um her casting was was motivated by she does have this innocence about her which makes her seem more childlike, but equally I don't think I can't think of an actress who was well-known, who could have done what Sally Hawkins did for that film. No, I agree. And I, I liked the fact that, um, you know, okay, maybe, maybe she is supposed to be 25, but to me, she didn't look it. Um, she, it's not that she looked like she was, like, particularly old, but she just had this kind of slight everywoman element about her. Timeless, yeah. While also, of course, being very beautiful and having this, this very expressive face. And I think, you know, they actually jump very quickly from her meeting the creature for the first time to her like deciding to break it out of yeah, the lab. And like yeah. being like in love with him. And like you you kinda go with it, which I think is quite an achievement. Like there's no way in any sense she's ever scared of him. No. Nor does she ever like obviously she can't speak either, but ever express any kind of like fear of what other people will think or like a sense that society tells you no, there's no sense of like you shouldn't do this, it's wrong. She, they don't even talk about that. It's no. just pure motivated by love. And you, you do go straight with it, don't you? I think when she's talking to her 
her her friend i can't remember his name actually um the guy who who i thought she lived with but i think it's actually supposed to be her neighbor yeah they, 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 they i think they just happened to basically like live very close to each other yeah well when she's talking together, yeah when she's talking to her neighbor um and he is trying to understand and she says to him hear my words and say what i mean yeah yeah i yeah. love that bit and she's saying like he sees me for who he is and he doesn't see me as anything different he doesn't know uh, yeah or care that I thought I'm... that scene was so so powerful um, because she is communicating via sign language, um, and it's you know the forcefulness with which she signs, and also her it, the expressions on her face that make you realise how serious she is about it. Mm-hmm. And I think they do definitely draw a parallel between her her love for the creature, how society treats her, and then how society treats her neighbour, who is a gay man who's trying to kind of forge connections mm-hmm. and. You As know. he does with a guy in the pie shop. Yeah, and it, it doesn't really work. He turns out to be a major dick. Yeah. And you're right, you know, I think there's there's a real frustration you see on her face when she's trying to sign, and he, obviously, for our benefit, he some, sometimes they um, subtitle, subtitle it. it. Other yeah. times he just says what, he kind of goes, you know, oh, you're saying this to yeah. help you understand. And there's a bit in that section where she's signing, being like, listen to me, um, where he says it when she's describing the creature. And then... She goes, say what I sign. And then it starts coming out that she's been saying him and being like him. And he's like, oh, you're saying him now. And it's like, you see that frustration where she had to say, say exactly what I'm trying to sign because there is a certain sense of interpretation. Yeah. That comes with the communication, but particularly when you are mute and doing by sign language, talking to somebody else, like your message might not be completely brought over. And he maybe, she felt maybe he was willfully trying to you know, willfully trying to misunderstand what she yeah. was saying or how at work her friend talks for her, that there was this real sense of you can actually see how frustrating it might be to be somebody who can't talk and won't talk and has to communicate by sign and is perfectly happy with doing that but then has to deal with this wall that people can put up because they can deliberately misunderstand yeah. you. Or Yeah, I thought, um, yeah, ultimately for me the standouts were Sally Hawkins the just general beauty of the film. Like, it's definitely a worthwhile film to see on the big screen, I think. It just, it's, it's just a pleasure to watch, isn't it? Yeah. And the music itself is also beautiful, really well. It's yeah. got a kind of, like, you were saying, um, Parisian Amelie-esque feel with all of the um, accordion. Um, and it's got this slightly, like, mystical, as you said, like, um, mythical kind of, like, sense of it. And equally, it kind of feels, like, watery as well. Yeah, and- which I, I really loved that, like, the sort of... I think that adds to the otherworldly effect and also adds to the idea that, that maybe there isn't that much that differentiates us from from the other, you know, like we're actually, mm. she's kind of in this world, which is almost like the sea. So then when, at the, mm. one thing that I thought was really interesting, we should discuss. So at the end, at the end, she is actually shot by, spoiler alert, sorry. <laughs> Hopefully you heard me say the end. And you um, we'll, ha- we'll have spoilers yeah. in the thing anyway. Um, so she... <coughs> the end, she um, is shot by the evil man. Who I can't remember the name um, or something. I know me neither. Like, Don't care. I feel like it's not important. Um, <laughs> and then she goes, he, the creature takes her into the water and they beautifully float off together. Right, that's actually very similar to how a lot of these films where people fall in love with somebody from another time or another another uh, another do, world do not mention that film to me <laughs> no 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 <laughs> you are not referencing that film. hear me out <laughs> oh my god you're so right it's, and i it's hate it it's very common in those films for for the human from our real world to join the the creature or the person from by the jumping other world, through a portal by, off the Brooklyn by jumping bridge. off something. <laughs> yes, you're right. The example that Helena is freaking out about is uh, the little known lack of classic <laughs> Kate, Kate and Lee 
Leopold. So, Hugh Jackman. Sorry, you know. Hugh Jackman. Oh, God. Early Hugh Jackman with Meg Ryan. Beyond awful. In that film, Hugh Jackman is from the past. And at the end, uh, in order to be with him, Meg Ryan jumps <laughs> off the Brooklyn Bridge. Into a goes, portal. Into a portal and goes back in time and lives happily with him in this, like, strange... You and know, he has to go back in time because he invented the elevator, etc., etc. Yeah, et but um, another film which does that is the film Splash with Tom Hanks, uh, where he falls in love with a mermaid. Oh. Um, it's like a rom-com. It's quite different from The Shape See, of Water. we but... have all these, you know, uh, H2O, that, that show with the mermaids, or um, Aquamarine, that film with the mermaid. That's not so different from Call Me By Your, Call Me By Your Name. <laughs> no, not right. That's not so different from Shape of Water. He's just got a fish body, not just a fish bottom. Yeah. You couldn't so, have sex with a mermaid anyway. My, my point is, is that in... A lot of those films, I've always had a problem with the protagonist from the real world giving up everything, giving up everything, and going and joining somebody in the magical world. Like mm. I've always found that like kind of Little weird. Mermaid, like except all the way around. Yeah, but I've always found it to be kind of strange because I'm always like in Kate and Leopold. You know, you're just a bit like, but what Why? are you going to do in the past? But I think in that film, in The Shape of Water, and partly it's obviously because she has been shot, mm. uh, but partly because they basically build up the film where that is what you want to happen, mm-hmm. and it's like the skill of the filmmaker. And actually, to spoil Pan's Labyrinth, mm. the same thing happens in Pan's Labyrinth at the end. She chooses to stay. She chooses to stay in this other world, and I think it's more a kind of a metaphor for you know choosing your own destiny and, and accepting your other world yes yeah, and yeah accepting what makes you you and it, obviously these other films that we've been like jokingly comparing it to are maybe less serious and like less thought out but i still think that they could learn from that film in terms of like how you get somebody to appreciate a romance between two people from different well one of them gives up everything yeah, yeah yeah absolutely because you have to have a sense that this person um would find their true position and their true place because obviously we are we are not all we all like to be two halves of the same whole. That's the great thing about a relationship. If you can feel like you're not really yourself without the other person. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful thing about romantic relationships or friendships. But um, I think when you still have to have a sense of this person is choosing this. Because this, in the end, you are yourself. And yeah, you, it's that agency. You only yeah. know who you are. And your life and your experience can't be wholly defined by somebody else. So, And what's interesting about this one, it had a very poetic... It, it kind of really satisfied the, you know, the English literature person in me that, you know, the symbolism, like she begins with these three scars on either side of her neck where it's not clear where she gets that gets them. And somebody guesses that she maybe got scratched when she was a child or something like that. And I think but, they took out her vocal cords, don't they? Yeah, and he says, nasty. no, they, they, he suggested that ripped out her vocal cords and the woman and her friend just says, no, she just doesn't speak. Mm. So um, this very violent explanation was kind of disregarded. And they kind of point out that she was found as a child in, by the river. Yeah. So yeah. obviously, it's, I'm not saying that she is a fresh person. No, but they do kind of... They do kind of suggest that yeah. she has some link to the water. Absolutely, yeah. and that and that elevates it to that slightly fantasy level magical realism in that she could have had this like destiny all along. That when you know when he kisses her and then these gills open up, she doesn't make them; they're kind of already there. Yeah, yeah. And as you said, like she is. Uh, she's kind of outside society she has this role with water she feels very comfortable with him and a connection with him that maybe comes from again this like 
you know when people say, um, oh, humans only use 10% of their brains. If they used 100, they might be able to do magic or something like that. I always like that sort of like, it's not scientifically proven, but I always like that sort of like perhaps link to an extra level of nature of reality that maybe we aren't aware of. That's why I like physics as well. Mm. This kind of thing that might connect you to the world beyond what we know and what we understand. And I like that, the way they did that with her, that she might have had this connection to this supernatural world where he comes from, the amphibious creature that maybe we don't know or can't see or understand, but it's still kind of there. And then that also actually brings it full circle when, you know, he brings her back to life because he has the power. I love that bit at the end as well, where the creature finally got to like, you know, you finally got to see the creature in its element. And you really get this sort of hero moment for him, which I quite like. It was like, yeah, yeah, you protect Sally Hawkins. Like, you know, you do that. And I like that the creature got to have some agency of its own. It wasn't just constantly having to be shepherded around by other people. Yeah. One of the other things that we liked about this film mm. was the fact that the heroine is a is a woman. Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. Very, very much so. Um, and that kind of uh, leads us uh, nicely on to Ladybird. Oh, of which, course. Which is very female-dominated. It is a young woman's story. Her relationship with her mother. Yeah, and then it's directed by a woman, Greta Gerwig. And mm-hmm. that, of course, as we were talking about earlier, has caused... has, has provo- provoked a lot of discussion about the, you know, the role of female directors uh-huh. uh, before we saw this film I know you were saying Helena that you you were unsure how it wasn't that you didn't think that she was a good director but you were wondering how her director skills were were showcased in this film which is actually kind of low key and really about everyday life yeah it's not like Dunkirk for example people were kind of saying as a master of camera work at least because there's these rolling shots where they're literally inside the belly of a ship which yeah. is sinking um, and there's moments where they're in the waves um, and there's the inside the plane shots yeah. um, there's a lot of different stuff going on in Dunkirk which is more obviously flashy cinematography just like the music of Dunkirk is more obviously flashy because it's Hans Zimmer it's all the really tense mm, thing um, and someone was talking about that compared to Greta Gerwig's work which is more low key still just as just as pulling I, felt, I find it pulled me more into the movie yeah, I felt much I more included than Dunkirk but Dunkirk's more obviously. It's like looking at a Van Gogh and being like, woo! And then looking at like a little known artist and being like, oh, it's just as good, but like it's not Van Gogh, is it? Like, you see what I mean? Yeah, I think it's that showiness, um, which, which, you know, the film doesn't have. But actually, you know, I was so struck watching it by, it's got this very dreamy, nostalgic feel. Pastel. Which is very appropriate for the film because it is really looking back on... Um, Childhood. And... Yeah, on youth and growing up and and a place that you lived and kind of looking at somewhere through a sort of rose-tinted lens, mm-hmm. you know, the place you grew up that actually maybe at the time you took for granted and you just wanted to escape. And I think that's a feeling that is very relatable. Mm. And she totally captures that with her with her camera work. Mm. One of the other things I've read about her directing, which I really agreed with, was a lot of the scenes are really short. Mm-hmm. You know, you see, like, a brief glimpse of, like, the play. And, like, the, the scene that I think is, that stands out for me most in terms of these, like, really brief scenes that really tell you a lot is when Lady Bird, played by Saoirse Ronan, walks in on her first boyfriend, uh, who is kissing a, a guy, which obviously oh, reveal, reveals to her that he is gay. Um, and this all... And then you, the next scene, you know, maybe, like, a second later, you see her, like, crying in the car with her friend. Mm. And that all happens in, like, the space of, like, no time at all. Mm-hmm. But it's really effective. And actually, in some ways, if it had been d- dwelt upon for longer, the kind of 
the effect might have been diminished a bit because as it is, you actually get the shock factor that mm-hmm. she obviously experiences. But she wouldn't have, you know, it's all about Ladybird's experience, yeah. isn't it? Like once she, once she sort of like stops hanging out with her best friend for a little bit, you see nothing of the best friend yeah. really until Ladybird decides to go back with her. And you don't see a lot of, you know, she leads the whole film and the whole point is it's about the, in, how, it's about how engrossing youth can be and how, if you think about anyone but yourself because you're so concerned with yeah. what you're doing. So the fact that she chooses to follow Saoirse, Ladybird, in this scene rather than stay there, because, you know, you would run out, you wouldn't ask, you wouldn't want to know what was going on. So yeah, as the audience member, you're deprived well, of that, yeah. aren't you? So you're right, because it's, it's all about... I mean, apart from that, apart from a few moments with the mum, like when the mum's driving... There's this wonderful long shot where the mum is driving away from the airport when they've dropped Ladybird off and the dad... And she's like, I don't want to come in because she's still hurt, but also angry at herself for, you know, pushing her daughter away. And then you drive and you see her decide to turn back and she goes round the big turning again and then gets out of the car and runs and tries to see her. Like, that was, you know, a really special moment as well. But for the most part, (laughs) you're all right. But for the most part, it is meant to be from Labour's perspective itself. It's very, uh, you know, saying it's relatable sounds like such a kind of cliche, but it is. Mm -hmm. And I think... Um, you know, it's a real props to Greta Gerwig and to Saoirse Ronan, who I just think is like a fabulous actress. Oh, she's amazing. Um, and she's really and good. the mother, who's played by Laurie Metcalf. You know, oh, Sheldon's mom from Big Bang Theory. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know the opening scene. In the opening scene, they it really tells you everything you need to know about their relationship because the two of them are driving, having been on a college tour. Mm. They've just listened to The Grapes of Wrath, which is like pretty funny to begin with to be honest it's like quite an intense book to listen to in the car um it finishes they're both kind of wiping away their tears and then like two minutes later they're bickering yeah but it's so naturalistic that a lot of people have asked the actors and asked Greta Gerwig whether it was it was improvised and Mm. she's like no like none of it's improvised like it's all scripted like everything it's so realistic and it mm-hmm. makes you realise how talented those actors are to be able to, like, do this thing where they sort of cut across one another. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they roll their eyes, they sigh, they laugh, they cry. They do it all as if you would with your mother. Well, again, it shows you, I think, which I think that isn't really, appreci- isn't really appreciated in modern culture so much that actually you can fight like nothing else with your family or with your friends. And it's not the way you know, a romantic comedy might show it, for example, that you don't talk for six months after you and your friend have a raging row. Mm. Like, in the end, um, these small moments of drama actually are much less important than you think they would be. Um, and, you know, maybe, I think I think maybe the media endears you to think that, you know, you have a fight with somebody and then your relationship is going to be from there. Yeah. But actually, we're all much more, like, forgiving people who are actually very much in need of our emotional relationships. So it's it that's what made it again much more realistic for me that this is the relationship ladybird has with her mum where they're constantly fighting but then her dad will turn around to her and say your mom's been really unhappy and ladybird will be like oh i know or somebody will be like mom's a bitch and she'll be like no my mom just loves me a lot yeah it's so true i think there was there was some bits where where um she would defend her mother or she would like realize that she'd pushed it too far mm. you know she would have been like really getting at her, really trying to wind her up, or mm. just kind of disagreeing with her, and mm. just trying to do her own thing and being yeah, selfish. And then she'd realise that she'd crossed a line, and then she'd be like, backpedaling. Sorry, so sorry, far, sorry, sorry, like, sorry, I'm yeah. so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, we've all done that. Yeah. Particularly at that age, where you kind of, you're fighting for your independence, and also, you just want them to look after you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so, as you say, it's also really effective in, in her friendship with her best friend. And then also her... The relationships that she forms with, like the new, the cool, popular girl, and mm. they're kind of 
they're kind of like interactions where you're just like you know these people aren't supposed to be friends but it's so spot on like every single character all the subsidiary characters well they aren't subsidiary like they're just as important to her her character group at the time yeah yeah um yeah and you know shout out to timothy chamelay for playing the uh arty you know boyfriend who anti-establishment all, yeah i mean we would all have loved him at high school like, yeah you know, it was so accurate but i think that was what was great about it too is that there is a certain insincerity about being young where you pretend not to care about anything mm. and then she goes through that herself like she, she she's not just like that they don't try and pigeonhole people in this film do they everyone has their flaws because in the end there isn't really a popular a nerdy a scene an email no, there no. Isn't she just like, decides that like this group of people are people she should be friends with so she does and then she decides she doesn't want to anymore yeah and then she just gets out of the car and just doesn't hang out with them like that's there's no kind of it's like you say that's never a big deal it's mm. ne- it's just kind of like realistic and i i liked how you got these little insights into each person's life mm. although it's very ladybird centric you still so like her her first boyfriend you realise he has this very kind of conservative family. Mm. It's from a certain background, which, you know, is clearly going to make it a bit tough for him to come out. Mm-hmm. And then her second boyfriend, you know, he seems like, to be honest, a bit of a dick. But then, you know, you realise that his father is sick. Yeah. And, and in fact, all the kind of uh, rich people who she sort of goes to school with, you think actually maybe don't have the same level of compassion and and love in their family that she does in, in her background that she's actually a bit resentful of. Mm, and like in an equally you see her relationship with her parents, whilst difficult, they both know exactly who she is mm. and she doesn't hide anything from them. Um, and then, you know, you see her father and her brother both trying to get a job, even though her brother went to, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, your brother and your brother's girlfriend went to Berkeley and they're both working like as, you know, checkout chicks in the local store. Like, yeah, it really quite perfect for me. And it is... It quite perfectly kind of encapsulated what it is like to be young and not be an adult, but not be a child either. Yeah, I still found it, you know, like, you know, we are now more adult than child, but I still found parts of it relatable. You know, mm. actually one thing I was going to draw a comparison with was, um, oh, I'm very sorry, listeners, like my cough is really getting to me. <laughs> We're gonna have it sounds to... like I'm choking up. It's like, it's not out of emotion. <laughs> um, but the scene I was going to highlight is after she... She slept with Timothy Chalamet's character for the first time, and it's just really not what she wanted it to be. Yeah, she's really upset, and she calls her mum and gets in the car and then just cries. Mm. It, I thought that was an interesting parallel to in Call Me by Your Name when oh, he says goodbye to Oliver and then gets in the car with his mum and cries. And I thought in both cases it really, really struck a chord with me because it's like no matter, you know, no matter whether you've told your parents about what you've been doing or not or whatever it is in that moment where you're upset you just need your mum and it's just in both cases it was such a kind of very sweet relatable um moment of like emotional honesty absolutely uh, in the end i think both of them have that just sort of like that time in child that time in like late youth early adulthood where you're starting to find out who you are and then you start to have the experiences that make you and shape you as a person yeah. and you see the two of them go through that and i think even that you know the whole point of the film the fact she's called ladybird which is a name as she says she's given herself oh, she that was you know she's like i'm not called what's her name christine christine she's like i'm not called christine i'm called ladybird and then she obviously gives up at the end yeah because it is a bit conceited stupid youthful thing but that's what young people are pretentious what they do yeah you know? and a lot of it is subconscious you know and i think that's kind of what the film does quite well in like the ways in which she matures over the course of the film are not obvious, like, lessons that she learns. Well, yeah, like, nobody ever stories. says to her. Like, her mum never says to her, stop doing this, because her mum is equally trying to 
find her way through her life as anyone else is. So yeah, yeah you're right. There aren't there, there is no wise Yoda esque person. No. It just kind of happens that she she changes and she makes choices and then she regrets some of them and she is happy with some of them. Mm. And it, I think it very much feels like a slice of life. And it's interesting earlier when you mentioned it and you said that you, you did think it was kind of a female a movie aimed at women. And I think like that's definitely true. It's been interesting to me to learn that a lot of men have really related mm. to it and really enjoyed it as mm. well. And I, the other thing I think is that, you know, it's set in 2002, I think. Yeah. Um, and it's a very specific setting. Like there's a lot of references to things that happened at, like, around that time. People wouldn't have cell phones. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Timothy Chalamet was against them. So. <laughs> he doesn't like them. Uh, but it's, it has this, uh, you know, universality that for us who are like a bit, a bit younger than that, you know, you still could relate it back to your school experience. And the same as well with it being sat specifically in Sacramento and specifically American. Like I did listen to an interview with Greta Gerwig where she said how she was surprised that people, well, not even surprised, but just like pleased that people outside of the US had related to the film. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because like it really, it really perfectly captures those relationships that we all have. Mm-hmm. So it's not place and time specific, even though it evokes those places, that place and time very well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that might be a good place to end this section. I think you think? so, um, yeah. Yeah. I think what we can gain from that is that we've been really blessed with Oscar films yeah, this year. Yeah, we really have. And, I, you know, it's been really exciting seeing so many films that, like, I've really loved. But yeah, so, well, let's move on. In terms of pop culture... Um, I, so I recently went to see a, a play with Carrie Mulligan, oh, which is on yes. in the West End, which I highly recommend for any London dwellers. I think it's actually sold out, but they do this like £12 tickets every Monday that oh, you can try cool. and claim, which is worth doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Girls and Boys. It's a one-woman show with Carrie Mulligan completely commandeering the stage, uh, which is perhaps no surprise, but it was still like really exciting to see. Because, you know, I felt like it's the Edinburgh Festival. You've seen so many bad one-woman shows. You know? <laughs> so it was really exciting to see to see her take, take the stage. Um, and it's a really, really, like, tantalising, like, interesting look at, like, gender relations. Okay. But when it begins, it literally feels like a stand-up comedy sketch. Sure. Because she's just standing there, she's got a really good comic timing, um, and it gradually kind of... Uh, kind of segues into something a lot darker um and intense uh but it <laughs> remains like really captivating throughout sure so really enjoyed that when i came home from it i was like vaguely disturbed um and my flatmate and i were like we need something like light-hearted to watch um and i had seen on twitter a lot of buzz about um so there was a show on in the noughties which was very much part of that like makeover show trend like alongside like trini and susanna and stuff oh like or um what is it called natural beauty that yeah. one they have on um oh i can't remember what it's called but it was on the bbc a lot yeah so those kind of shows um and one of them was called queer eye for the straight guy <laughs> which was basically about five gay guys who would go and revolutionize a straight man's life and it was it was I never saw it at the time, yeah. um, but apparently it was very well liked, but it did sort of lean into a lot of stereotypes sure. of like gay the men, sassy gay you know, friend, yeah. Be, yeah, and being like, you know, good at like heart to hearts and organizing stuff. Whereas the straight men being like really rubbish at that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> and it's been rebooted by none other than Netflix. Uh-huh. And it's now just called Queer Eye yeah. because the men that they make over are of different, um, you know, sexual orientations. And it's, it's more about, 
and it, although they do make over their appearance i would say that that is like less of a that's it tends to be more of a case of like encouraging them to like pursue self-care and to like look oh, after themselves yeah. and a really big part of it is just like helping them through their problems and like almost like being life coaches sure I so recommend it. Like, there's ten, maybe ten episodes on Netflix. Mm. And having been ill over the past weekend, I just, like, steamrolled through them. Um, and the the five guys who were, like, the sort of gurus, they call them the Fab Five. <laughs> That's <laughs> a great name. They, they are fab. Like, <laughs> yeah, sure. But some of them, like, do so much. Like, the guy who, who like, does the houses, so mm. he'll, like, literally redo someone's house in a week. Cool. It's, like... It's extreme home, very extreme home makeover. Yeah. But then you've got, like, this guy who's the cook who is just, like, really good-looking but doesn't really seem to do anything. He just, like, <laughs> shows them how to, like, make a grilled cheese or, like, a hot dog. And, and then it just like, looks what? cute. Yeah, so it's quite entertaining, but it's really moving. And, like, the reason I started watching it is because people on Twitter were like, this makes me cry, like, every episode. And I was like, really? Like, you know, found that, like, slightly hard to believe given it seems like it's very frothy. Yeah. But you watch it and actually, like, all the men that they meet and whose, whose lives they kind of step into... They really do seem to have a really positive, like, lasting yeah, impact on. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, yeah, I really recommend it. It's got, like, the kind of light-hearted element, but it does also make you think a lot about, like, you know, how they say, like, the fragility of masculinity and, like, how men don't always have that ability to be able to express their emotions. And mm. I feel like this show really kind of delves into that. So, oh, awesome. Yeah, those are my uh, recs to it. To recs. the end of the spectrum. Um, how about you, Helen? What have I been loving? Well, I have one, one teeny extra thing in there, actually, is um, drag queen makeover videos. Oh, yeah. Um, obviously, RuPaul's Drag Race has been going for years now, yeah. and I haven't really watched it because I can't really access it, but all the drag queens are all on YouTube. Yeah. Um, and, um, and people like Cosmo, Cosmopolitan, and um, the RuPaul YouTube channel do a lot of, like, them putting their makeup on and chatting about what they're doing. Right. And I just... There's so much out there, and I just... I love it. I watch Trixie Mattel, um, Courtney Act, um, Alaska Thunderfuck. <laughs> they have great names. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they're just putting makeup on. I love it. And they're all fun and interesting. <coughs> and they all tend to... So that's why... One thing I just watch kind of on the regs when I'm bored, I watch like a 17-minute drag queen video. I really recommend Miss Fame. She is a fantastic makeup artist. Anyway, mm. but things I've been liking a lot recently. I recently started Kate Chopin's The Awakening, which is one of the really classic um, first feminist novels um you know that has that was ever not ever written but that actually started to make waves in american society particularly right. it was written in the 1890s i believe um and it's a really great story it's only about it's kind of like um i bought that and wide sargasso sea by jean reese at the same yeah. time so it's a very similar story it's telling the story of a woman in the i think it's 1890s um new orleans and kind of southern louisiana america um, and she's married to a man and she's fine, but then she kind of like falls in love one summer with um, a young man um, and she starts to push against her boundaries and to not actively question what her life's like, but more like she starts to act out. Mm. Like she doesn't take her social calls. <laughs> she, you know, goes to the races, does what she wants. She doesn't... And there's a really interesting thing where it's like she doesn't have the same connection with her children, for example, that, like, other mothers that she knows do. And it's more the fact that there's nothing, not anything wrong with her, but she's just a woman who started to strain against her bonds and she didn't know they were there. And it's essentially just the story of, like, what happens in, you know, 1890s New Orleans when a woman and a wife starts to strain against her bonds and to take this kind of like joie de vivre approach to life. Um, I haven't got to the end yet, so I don't know what happens. And I think, obviously they say 
disaster befalls her once she starts to not do things the way she's supposed yeah. to. But I haven't got to the disaster yet. I'm only like 20 pages from the end. So I'm not sure oh, what's going to okay. happen. But who knows? I'm still hoping that the guy she fell in love with comes back because he left, because he was in love with her and he knew nothing could happen. It was sad. So it kind of has that slightly dramatic... Yeah. You know, it's <coughs> kind of like, I would say, Jane Austen, for example, in that, you know, she can't be a cliche because she started the cliche of, you know, yeah, sure. the kind of like forbidden love story. So... Mm. Really enjoying that because it's not too subversive or postmodern either. Then I recently have started questing um, with dun- I've, st- I've started playing Dungeons and Dragons. So we're going to talk about International Women's Day. We're going to you know delve into a maybe more male dominated area of yeah. RPG board games. But no, I have a group of four women, including myself, who have been off questing um and essentially it's really easy my friend got me the starter pack for my birthday and they have a whole bunch of character sets that you can use um so with characters you have to sort of build them in a certain way so you can have the right stats and races and stuff they have a whole lore that's attached to the Dungeons and Dragons universe and they have a story you can play but equally as the dungeon master which is me you run the story and essentially it's really fun because you're reacting to the way in which the your people you're questing who are questing want what they want to do so for example we stumbled into a goblin cave at one point and the story had suggestions what could happen but then they went completely off the track and they were like can we do this can we do that and it relied on my imagination as well as theirs to explore this story and um and they've all kind of made up their own backstory and i think we have one guy two women except one of them is has dressed up as a man don't tell anybody by the way, it's a secret she told me. My friends don't listen to it, it's fine. Um, just up as a man in order to sort of like complete this quest. And it's, the, you know, the only boundary is your imagination. Yeah. And it's really great because it's one of those spheres in which RPG playing, video game playing, I think, is not dominated by men. There are plenty of women who do it. But it's sort of seen as a guy thing. And the women yeah. who enter into that world are either bullied or discredited. Okay, there are lots of examples where you know women can can function in the video game world completely happily, but it is still a social as a, as a, rule, yeah, a social stereotype. Yeah. And you know we're there having a really great time. You know I've always enjoyed the fantasy genre, especially the high fantasy Tolkien. It's very Tolkien esque. Mm-hmm. So to play in this world where the only thing that's maybe slightly like guy, I say it with air quotes about it, is that the propensity towards violence. You have to fight people, but that's not something I feel alienates me at all mm. uh, and it's really fun really great way we spent seven hours questing in my basement and it's such so much fun and it's a great way to hang out with your friends to sort of push your imaginations and find your childhood love for role playing and for yeah. you know when you're a kid you turn around they're pretending to be dragons and flying around and that kind of thing so to kind of you know to att- reattach yourself to that sort of like childhood whimsy and also have some real fun questing with your mates playing in a world that has rules that you can kind of make yourself it's yeah really really fun tabletop game definitely really been enjoying that nice slightly subversive not really that subversive (laughs) (laughs) so yeah um that's us done i think let's wrap up yeah thank you so much for listening happy happy international International women's Women's day yeah Yeah, almost almost in sync there yeah almost in sync i think i said that you started saying it we were like oh eh." um you know i think this year has been a seminal year for women in the western world at least um but it has been a seminal year for women in the entertainment industry um particularly and as well in the political sphere in the western world so it's a uh, you know go out there celebrate your female friends um and encourage your male friends to celebrate us too because come on like yeah and if you haven't managed to catch uh, lady bird or the shape of water recommend and you live in the uk they're still on um mm-hmm. and definitely recommend trying to catch it this weekend if you can yeah and as you know as for us we have a lot 
most of our podcasts are very women focused anyway so we have a whole backlog of interesting stuff we've talked about call me by your name wonder woman all this kind of stuff so if you want to give us some of our back Log, back log, back catalog. Back catalog. Yeah. That's it. Back catalog. Listen, just go onto our SoundCloud or our iTunes. You're probably there already. Um, you can follow us on at RealLW on Twitter, where we tweet, obviously. Um, and we you can email us at loveslaborswatched at gmail.com, all lowercase. If you have any thoughts, questions, concerns, things you want to express. Um, and yeah, thanks for listening. We'll be back probably next week. Yeah. But we'll keep you updated. Yeah. Bye. Bye.